You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, I invite you this morning to turn with me to the book of Psalms. We'll be in the 25th Psalm this morning, page 459 of the Bibles in the Pews. We're in book one of the Psalter, Psalms 1 through 41, as we'll see, emphasizes the kingship of God, God as king over his people. So let us now pay heed to God's authoritative, inspired, and inerrant word for you and for me from Psalm 25 of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress." Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Psalm 25 does not come to us in a vacuum. Psalm 25, as we've seen throughout the Psalter, it comes on the heels of the Psalm before. There's an organic connection between these Psalms, an intentional effort to put them together. Psalm 24, if you remember from a few months ago, Psalm 24 was this great divine procession into the throne room of God, 
Indeed, this points us to the ascension of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is seated in heaven. So this is a coronation ceremony where Christ enters heaven and now is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So Psalm 24 undeniably teaches us Christ is king, Christ is ruling, Christ is in heaven over his people. And then we come to Psalm 25. What does this truth mean for me? What does it mean that Christ is ascended, Christ is seated as head over all things? What does it mean for the Christian? Well, we see in this psalm that it doesn't mean life will be easy. It doesn't mean that all of our problems disappear. Because David tells us his problems. David tells us that there's an ongoing struggle in the Christian life. And he brings us up first in verse 16, verse 16 through 22. He says in verse 16, I am lonely and afflicted. Have you ever felt this way? Like nobody knows your situation, like nobody has experienced what you're going through. You have no shoulder to cry on. You're lonely. You're afflicted. He uses other language to to further our understanding of his situation. The troubles of my heart are enlarged with distress, he says in verse 17. There's a deep sadness, a bursting of his being with the difficulties facing him, feeling a a sense of, of deep distress that he doesn't know what to do with. He again says he is full of affliction and troubles in verse 18. He can't find enough words that describe the difficulties he's in. And he keeps this this vague, we don't know exactly what part of David's life this comes from. It could be many different instances. It's, It's for us also to relate to. He's feeling the depths of his agony and sadness and affliction. And in verse 19, a new character enters the scene. He says, consider how many are my foes. So there are foes pursuing him coming after him. He says, and with what violent hatred they hate me. His enemies who hate him, who want to see him dead, or at least who treat him as if he was dead. He's not only lonely, but people hate him. We don't know who these people are, but if you look at David's life, one of his greatest enemies who stirred up the greatest trouble against him was his own son, Absalom what deep distress this must have caused. And we see it reflected here in this psalm. Yes, towards the end of the psalm. But we see David's eyes are still set firmly on the God of promise, despite the storm. See, we don't even know this situation in David's life till close to the end of this psalm. We see the first half of it. Most of this is eyes fixed upon God. And then we say, wow, how incredible this is in light of all that's going on in his life. I've learned over the last couple of years, I really do enjoy cutting the grass. I enjoy a nice, freshly cut yard. I like to, you know, uh, try to get rid of the weeds, try to make it nice. I love the, the perfect lines. I love a baseball field, right, with all the perfectly cut lines in the outfield. And I would love to replicate that at my house. I can't do it very well, but I try. And I love those straight lines. And it took me a long time in high school when I first started trying to do this. It took me a long time to figure out, how do you get that first line straight? How do you do it? 
You can't just try to cut through the middle of the yard, trying to hold a straight line, looking down, saying, am I straight, am I straight, am I straight? Because every time you'll be veering to the left, veering away from that tree, the bumps will turn you left and right. What you have to do, insider tip, what you have to do is before you start your cut, you have to look to the end. You have to find a point, say, I'm going to that point. And I don't care if it feels like I'm drifting to the left. I don't care if it feels bumpy. I'm going to that point and stay on that task. Look above the grass. Look above the yard and say, I'm going here. This is what David is doing. He's demonstrating for us, despite the storm, despite the sea, he's looking to his Savior to keep him in the storm. We see this in verse 1 through 3. He says, he begins this way, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. I lift up my soul. He presents himself to God, clinging to nothing but God, dedicating himself completely to him. He gives his soul, his being to God for safekeeping. Another way to, to think of this verse is that he's setting his desires upon God. I lift up my desires to you. I set my desires upon you. It's a conscious choice to answer this question. What do I value? What do I desire? What do I long for? What do I yearn for? I yearn for you, O oh God. I set my desires upon you. I offer my soul to you. I lift it up to you, my God and my King. It's not for my situation to be fixed. It's not merely that I would escape. It's not that I hope that you would snap your fingers and make everything all better. No, I'm fully fixed upon the God who loves me. There's an ancient Christian liturgy that goes back all the way to the third century. And many Christians across the world do this today. It's called the Sursum Corda. And it's where the pastor would say to the congregation, lift up your hearts. And the people respond, we lift them up to the Lord. Sometimes it's used at the beginning of a worship service. Sometimes it's used before the Lord's Supper. We, we lift up your hearts, lift up your souls. And our response is we lift them up to the Lord because this is fundamentally what worship is. It's offering our souls, our hearts to the Lord. It's an ascent to heaven with God, a reminder of our humility and submission to him. This is the essence of worship. So he begins, I lift my soul to you. I trust in you. He says now in verse two, oh my God, in you I trust. And this harkens back to Psalm two, Psalm two, verse 12, that says, blessed are all who take refuge in the son. He even uses that, that language of refuge in verse 20. I take refuge in you. David's saying, I am taking refuge in you. Trust is refuge seeking. It's a fortress of protection that's there. It's like if you're in the middle of a field, the bombs are coming down from overhead. What do you do? You don't build a shack with sticks. You find that underground presidential top secret bunker that has a room for you. And that's the refuge that David is speaking of, trusting in this God who provides this bunker for us. Not in my own works, not in my own veneer of protection that I think I can put over things. I trust in you. He knows that in the end, God triumphs over his enemies. And so David asks God to not let his enemies triumph over him and put him to shame. 
because the world is watching what is happening to Israel and David, let not them be brought low for all the world to see. And in verse three, he recites this promise, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. And so he, he pleads on the basis of that promise in verse two, let me not be put to shame. I wait for you, O Lord, I trust in you. You won't let us sink under. You will vindicate us. You are on your throne. But he does say, I will wait. And he says it again later in verse 21. I wait for you. This is the duty of those who are in trials, to wait for the Lord. Not to wait in inaction and to not do anything, but waiting is trusting the Lord to work. It's taking the steps of wisdom, as we'll see, but submitting all of our ways to him. Waiting upon the Lord, trusting in him. This psalm is interesting from one perspective because it's an acrostic. It means the, the first word in each verse begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet and the psalm goes through the, the, the whole Hebrew alphabet. I say whole, that's not exactly correct though because this is a broken acrostic. Some letters are missing. Some of these letters are veiled or maybe in the middle of the line. And scholars like to debate why this is so, what happened here. But I tend to agree with those who say, I think this represents the broken state that David is in. There's an order, there's, there's some kind of order that can be found, but it's a, a broken order. Things are not how they should be. He's demonstrating his difficulty, even through the structure of this psalm. And so we see less thematic organization of this psalm as others, but we see that structural organization that we lose in the English, but is helpful to understand nonetheless. So we see David is, has faith despite his circumstances. And looking to God, he rests upon God's promises. Can you in any way relate to this? Can you in any way relate to the circumstances of your life being unsure and unsettled? I know if you were asked this morning, how are you? You'd probably say, I'm doing well, right? That's what we do when we're in passing. Hey, good morning, good to see you. How are you? I'm doing well. What if somebody pulled you aside and said, how are you doing? What's weighing on you? You begin to open up a little bit more. There's something weighing on all of us this morning, no doubt. Various degrees, of course, but everyone has something that's burdening them. And in the midst of this burden that you feel, the weight that you feel, there's one place we ought to go. We can fix our eyes on the Lord. And while we will carry these burdens throughout our life, he comes to us to strengthen us and sustain us through it as we meditate upon him, as we look to him, and his rule. This rule of Christ sitting on the throne secures great promises for all of us, all of us. And so briefly, I want to hit these three promises that we see arising from this psalm. So first, this promise of guidance. Verses four and five and eight through 12. When you're in these kinds of situations, overwhelmed with life, oftentimes the, the, the question we ask is, what do I do? I don't even know where to go. And it seems to me that's what David is asking as well. How do you wait? What do you do? John Calvin says of this psalm, he says, David implores the aid of the Holy Spirit. And I think he's exactly right. 
several places here. He's imploring the aid of the Holy Spirit for teaching, instruction, and wisdom. And it makes sense of why this psalm is often connected to the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. David, in verse four, wants to know the ways of God. In verse five, he says, lead me in your truth and teach me. Which way ought he to go in this situation? What ought he to do? How should he spend his time? What conversations ought he to have? Oh, may I know your ways, O Lord. He wants God's way, not his own. He needs wisdom to discern and understand. And this is grounded in the promise he brings up in verse eight. He says, good and upright is the Lord. Good and upright is God. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Because God is good. He is righteous. He instructs us in his goodness, in his wisdom. So how do we know the way of God in our lives? How do we know what way we ought to go? Now, we're not listening for a small whisper in our ear. That's not how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. But we go forward with the Holy Spirit that guides us in wisdom and knowledge and understanding. The Proverbs tells us that on one hand, we're to answer a fool according to his folly. On the other hand, we're not to answer a fool according to his folly. Which way is it? It requires wisdom to know how to proceed. Requires wisdom to know which route to take. And daily life is full of these decisions. And especially when we're under the crashing waves, we're often overwhelmed. I don't even know what to do. And Paul in Ephesians, in, in Ephesians chapter one, he prays for this, for, his, for the congregation there. He prays that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and a revelation. And we read earlier of the spirit, the Holy Spirit being given to us to impart wisdom upon us. And that we would do what is honorable and pleasing to God. And we don't, we don't navigate wisdom by some, some feeling that we get. It's not always the, the feels like peace to do the right thing. When Jesus was at the cross, it wasn't a feeling of peace. No, it was the right thing to do. We do what is right according to God's word and with the wisdom that he gives us by his spirit. And we know, according to James, that when we ask for wisdom, he will give it to us. So in our lives, in the midst of the storm, we ask for guidance and God will give it. And not that he's going to make it clear, go through door A and not door B, but we commit our ways to him. Say, Lord, bring people into my life to help me understand. Lord, I don't know exactly where to go, but I need you to light the path, to show me what is wise and what is good. We have to understand our situation. We have to understand others. We have to understand so much about the world around us. Wisdom is an eternal pursuit we will be on. But the Lord gives it nonetheless. He ends this plea with a foundation of all of wisdom. Where does wisdom come from in verse 12? He says, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. We receive this wisdom, this instruction from God when we fear the Lord. This is the foundation of it all. When we look to him and his majesty and his sovereignty and not a servile fear, but a fear nonetheless that he is righteous. He stands in authority over all things, that he is good and kind to those who come to him by faith. 
He will instruct in the way that he should choose. And we don't always make decisions knowing all the facts. We aren't able to make perfect decisions every time. But the Lord will instruct. The Lord will assist. And as we fear God, not man, our ways will become more clear. We must understand his strength, his majesty, his holiness, his goodness, and keep our eyes fixed upon God first. We say, what honors him above all else? then the root of God's truths will sprout up in wise living. And in having biblically shaped, Holy Spirit-infused wisdom will help us handle difficult situations in life. So this is one of the promises we receive, a promise of guidance, instruction from God. Why? Because Christ rules on the throne. Second is this, forgiveness. Forgiveness, because Christ is on the throne, we have forgiveness. And in, in the midst of this difficulty, it leads David to ask the question, is the Lord chastening me for my sin? Am I in this position because of my sin? Now, this is different from asking, is God angry with me because of my sin? Is God getting back at me because of my sin? That's not what he's asking. He's saying, is God chastening or disciplining me, showing me my sin through this circumstance? And we ought to ask this question as well. Not, again, to feel like God is abandoning, abandoning us. Not because God is angry with us. Again, that is not true for those who are in Christ. But God does chasten us to grow us in righteousness and holiness, to show us our sin, to show us our need of Christ all the more over and over. And so David asks the question that we are often loath to ask. Is the Lord chastening me? Where am I in sin that I don't understand? And so he asks the Lord to forgive him. A God who does not abandon his children. A God who is not lashing out in anger at his children. A God who does not abandon his children. A God who does correct them in love. And he grounds this request for forgiveness of sin in God's mercy in verse six. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. You've always been a merciful, a steadfast, loving God. And so remember not the sins of my youth and my transgressions. Apparently there's a sin from a long time ago that David has on his mind. Maybe it's something previously unconfessed. Maybe he feels the weight of this in his conscience. Maybe he hasn't sought forgiveness from the other person. I don't know. But I do know that there are sins a decade, two decades, three decades, five decades later that sometimes still haunt God's people. And David takes it to the throne of grace. Say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, wash me whiter than snow. Forgive all of my sins, this one as well. And he stands on the mercy of God, the steadfast love of God who will, as we have heard earlier, he will wash us clean. He does remember our sins no more. And not simply because he forgets and it drops out of his memory. No, he remembers our sins no more because they've been nailed to the cross. Because Jesus Christ has taken them upon himself. He, re he has received the justice that is due for these sins. So David's not excusing his sins. He's not downplaying them, but he offers them to the Lord, acknowledging his fault, seeking forgiveness, and noting God's mercy. 
But he continues in verse 11. He says, my guilt is great. Pardon it, my guilt is great. And this is an ongoing realization that my sin is greater than I ever understood before. When I understand the motivations of my heart, I understand how, how more sinful I, today, I, I understand today I'm more sinful than I thought I was yesterday. Our sins, our hearts are full of sin. And David acknowledges it, seeking the Lord's forgiveness, seeking that he would be pardoned for his guilt. But it's interesting here, he says, for your name's sake. Why would he ask God to pardon his sin for God's name's sake? Well, it's clear it's not for my name's sake. I don't say, God, I'm so great, so forgive me. For my name's sake, forgive me. Look, I'm, I'm really mostly a good guy. Forgive me for this one little thing I messed up in. We have no argument on our own. We can't, that argument is ludicrous because we are dependent wholly upon God for his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. And as we read earlier from Isaiah 43, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. And David pleads this promise for your sake, for your name, blot out my sins, wipe them away. How it would bring honor to God's name. How, how would it bring honor to God's name if God's people, the ones who carry his name, Christians who carry the name of Christ, how would that bring honor to God's name if they continued to carry the guilt and burden of their sin? David recognizes that does not bring honor to God's name if we should bear the load of our sin. We carry God's name and we are purged of our sin because of Christ. This is for the glory of God's name. This is that the world might know that God is faithful and merciful and forgiving. It's for her, his name's sake that our sins are forgiven. And this, of course, brings us back to the fundamental core of the gospel that your sins are forgiven in Christ. Your sins are forgiven because of what Jesus Christ has done for his people. Every sin of breaking God's law was paid for by him. Every sin of failing to do what the law requires was paid for by him. All of it is an offense and all of it is forgiven for God's holy, unimpeachable, righteous name's sake. And you can take that promise to the bank. In the midst of your swirling situation in life, yes, acknowledge that maybe the Lord is chastening you for your sin. Yes, maybe the Lord is disciplining us for our sin. But no, your sin is forgiven by Christ. Seek his forgiveness. Acknowledge your sin. You no longer carry the weight of it. You no longer carry the guilt of it. God himself has carried it in Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, as he bore your sins on his shoulders on the cross. So what do God's people get from Christ being on the throne? The benefit of his work on the cross. Praise God, as we know, Christ is sitting in heaven ruling. He's forgiven your sins. And we can be assured because Christ is our king. So these two great blessings of guidance, forgiveness. And then finally, we have the promise of eternal blessing. The promise of eternal blessing, verses 13 through 15. And this comes on the heels of that verse 12, where, where David asks the question, who's the man who fears the Lord? And he says, God instructs him, 
But verse 13, let me, let me read verse 13 through 15. His soul, those who fear the Lord, his soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. These are realities that transcend our current situations. Realities that are true now and forevermore, no matter how you feel it, no matter what's going on, no matter what Satan might say to make you discount this, these things are true of those who fear the Lord. In other words, true of those who look to Christ in faith. Verse 13, he refers to the deepest, most extensive way to refer to a person. He says his soul. His soul will abide, will dwell in well-being. You may have heard the, the Hebrew word tov. It's the word for well-being here. This is, this is a word that speaks of, 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 of excellent goodness, a right state of being, a highest quality of harmony and purity. God is good. Only God is tov. But we get to abide in tov. We get to abide in well-being and all that is right and all that is good and all the glory of the presence of God. Every day, now and forever, we have well-being. And we see that it's not just a here and now reality. In light of all of scripture, we know that this, this reality comes to the greatest consummation when Christ returns and we dwell in the new heavens and the new earth with him. But we see a hint of that here in verse 13. The offspring of the man who fears the Lord shall inherit the land. And he begins to orient our, our, our view on the future here. The offspring, the next generation, inheriting this, this land flowing with milk and honey. And all of these Old Testament images point us to the highest consummate communion and fellowship with God forever and ever, dwelling with the one who is good in his presence and abiding with him forever. And verse 14 gives us another angle on this reality where it talks about the friendship of the Lord for those who fear him. Those who fear him have friendship with God. This is a, a fascinating concept because this word friendship is, if you have the ESV, you see there's a footnote. It talks about the secret counsel. This is a word that does refer to people who have an intimate connection with somebody else, have intimate knowledge, counsel, advice from somebody else. And so those who fear the Lord have an intimate knowledge, a close relationship with God, intimate counsel being revealed to them from God. And this is the kind of solace we can find in our Savior. Yes, he is far off, but he has come to you nearer than you can imagine in Jesus Christ by his Spirit. God is a friend of sinners. God is a friend of his people. He is with you, dwelling with you to reveal his counsel to you, his will to you. His friendship is astonishing. In verse 15, it says, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. He affirms what we started with. David's eyes are on Yahweh. His eyes are on the one who has redeemed him from death and brought him into life. And what's important here, he says, my eyes are ever, ever toward 
the Lord. Ever. This is an adverb for continually, an ongoing nature. Forever and ever. My eyes are forever on the Lord. I know this is my blessed hope is seeing God on that last day. The blessedness persists. This blessedness of of our communion with God is for now, but it's even greater for eternity. In the midst of the storm, these are true. The blessedness persists long after the hardship ceases, long after the enemies fade away, after we are vindicated, after we are given new bodies in the new heaven and the new earth, after we are brought into the eternal dwelling place of God, our eyes will continue to be fixed on him. For eternity, there's nothing greater than for us to train our eyes upon him. So let us begin now doing that. Let us train our eyes upon the author and perfecter of our faith, looking to him in the midst of all of our circumstances. This is the hope that not only carries us into eternity, but a hope that continues for eternity. So what comfort is there for the Christian? A Christian who is like David, lonely and afflicted, who has enemies coming after him, people slandering and speaking ill of him, who has nowhere to turn. What comfort is there for the Christian? Comfort is that Christ is on the throne. It's not even that your situation will get tremendously better in this life, but you have a king who rules and reigns and who loves you. And that's where this final plea comes from in verse 22. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. We know God will answer this prayer. We know God will redeem us from all of our troubles. Now we get spiritual redemption, but we wait for that day where we get redemption of body as well. When Christ returns, when Christ conquers all of his and our enemies, and we are redeemed out of all of our troubles. Oh, he is filled with mercy and steadfast love for his people. He will support you. He will guide you with his spirit. He forgives all of your sins. He gives you eternal blessings. He is with you today. In the midst of whatever difficulty you find yourself in, whatever weight that you carry this day, brothers and sisters, this is Christ's word for you. This is a Christ word for you personally today. It's for all of God's people, but you can take it to heart and take it to the bank. You, when you are walking in the wilderness, that God loves his people through Christ. And it is only through Christ that th- these things are true. And so we train our eyes upon him and him only. For those of you not looking to Christ, none of what we have said is true for you today. And this is a call. Yes, you are in this world with us as well. And you are in the midst of all of these swirling realities as well and difficulties, personal, professional, financial, whatever. But no hope that we've said applies apart from Christ. So friends, let us look to him. Let us enjoy his salvation. Let us receive and rest upon him. If you do that, you can know you are his can know that he will see you through the storms. He will never leave you nor forsake him. And we can look to him at all times in faith because he is good and his mercies endure forever. Let's look to him in prayer.
our gracious God, in the midst of difficulty, you are there. In the midst of being slandered, of feeling lonely, afflicted, having enemies, whatever the hardship is, we are grateful that you are with us. And you demonstrated this for us most clearly by giving us your son. Oh, we praise you for Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who has put upon himself the sins of his people, that we might know each and every benefit of salvation. May we cling to him, looking to you, and may you strengthen us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.